listening to 90% Mental, Conversations with Grant Parr, Episode 110. Today, mental performance coach Grant Parr sits down with Tyler Pazik, high performance coach and CEO of Pazik Performance, to talk about all things mental performance. From competing at the Division I baseball level to coaching mental performance at the military, Olympic, professional, and collegiate levels, Tyler is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to high performance and leadership strategies. It is his passion and authenticity for his work that truly brings out the greatness in his clients. interested in a full body resistance training system to achieve your athletic and fitness goals, the mass suit from Juke Performance is your answer. The mass suit is a full body resistance training suit that you wear during your exercising or sports specific training to enhance your speed, strength, power, agility, and endurance. You are fully mobile and it's great for plyometric and high intensity training. It engages all muscle groups simultaneously and increases to a 50% caloric burn. Check out the mass suit at jukeperformance.com and other fitness-related products, and make sure to use the promo code GRANTPAR, one word, G-R-A-N-T-P-A-R-R, for your 10% discount. Hey, Tyler, how are you? I am doing great, thank you. Right on, man. Well, I'm, I'm super excited to have you on my show not to only talk about um, you know being peers in the in the sports psychology field and, and picking your brain on uh, multiple topics, but actually picking your brain a little bit in your mindset when you're an athlete. So I think there's a lot of cool things that you can share not only from your journey, but you know sharing things um, from a mental performance standpoint on what you and I coach athletes and teams and coaches. So I'm I'm really excited to to pick your brain today. Yeah, I'm I'm ready to get into it. All right, man. Well, I know that you and I, uh, we, we live in the, the realm of mental toughness, and we talk about this word or words a lot with our teams and athletes. So when you think about being mentally tough, what does it mean to you? Man, this is a this is a great question. And actually, when I when I was getting my master's at TCU, I did my I did my thesis on mental toughness and anxiety. And what I found about mental toughness and the definition of mental toughness is that everybody has a different definition. <laughs> right. So I think that uh, this is a great question. And being mentally tough to me is it comes back to knowing what you want and then doing what you have to do to get what you want. And when you decide on what you want, you decide that you want to be a national champion. You decide that you want to be the greatest of all time. You decide that you want to make a million dollars in a year in your business, whatever it might be. Then it comes down to doing what you have to do to get what you want. And that's where the mental toughness lies because you're going to need to be resilient. You're going to need to be gritty. You're going to need to bring energy to every day. You're going to have to be dedicated and committed to the process. So it's raising your level of those values to fall in line with the goal. So the bigger your goals, the greater your dedication to those values you have to be. So I guess, yeah, mental toughness is knowing what you want and then doing what you have to do to get what you want. And it's tough to to really commit to getting what you want, especially when you have a huge goal. Yeah, man, that's that's beautifully said. And I mean, you're saying everything that just resonates with me. And it's so funny. I've had 
you know, I love opening my show with this question. And you and I and everyone in the, in the sporting world, we get what mental toughness means. But, <laughs> and you said it perfectly, man. Everyone has, a, has, has, to this day, everyone's had a different meaning or understanding or perspective of mental toughness. Yeah, it's it's such a hard, it's such a hard concept to grasp too because there's so many things that fall underneath it. It's just another it's just another value. It's like we could talk about being dedicated as well. Right. And that the definition of dedication could probably be the dedica- the definition of mental toughness as well. Totally. Absolutely. Now, you you had a a really good career in baseball and I know that you're you're very passionate towards the game of baseball. But can you share with my listeners uh, a time throughout your career where you had to be mentally tough, or can you share a specific time where you had to coach an athlete through a, a mentally tough situation? Hmm. Yeah, the first thing that comes to mind actually is recently I just I just got done working with University of Maine softball and University of Oklahoma baseball, and it's interesting to. Oh, here's a perfect example. Have you seen those strobe glasses ever? Um, strobe glasses, they like blink. They're like literally you put these glasses on and it's its like looking into a strobe light. Yes, yes. Okay, so at University of Maine softball, they use those. And the first day they used them was when I was there. And it was amazing. I'm telling you, it was so amazing. (laughs) These girls would hop in the cage and put these glasses on. And they were just doing front toss. But, you know, you could only see every other picture. And your brain had to fill in the gaps. And some of them were whiffing. They weren't squaring up balls. And they were just instantly put into this environment of adversity and struggle. And you could tell they get out of the cage and they're just visibly frustrated and irritated because they're not squaring up balls. They're not, they're not able to do what they normally do because they're inhibited. And so they get out of the cage and this one girl, for instance, we'll call her Jane. Jane gets out of the cage and she comes up to me or I come up to her and I'm like, Hey, I mean, tough round, huh? And she's like, yeah. And I said, I like how you took your breath. She got in there. She looked at her bat. She took a nice deep breath. And then I said, after that breath, what were you thinking about? And she goes, I was thinking about this, these strobe glasses and how I can't really see the ball. And I said, okay, well, when you're going at your best, when you're hitting at your best, what do you like to imagine? And she goes, I like to, I like to think to myself, extend through extend through. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, next time you get in there, just think, extend through. You take that same deep breath, bring yourself back to that one thought, (sighs) extend through and then get in and just extend through the ball. Next round, she was absolutely roping balls. The strobe (laughs) glasses didn't even matter. And so that's the power of getting back to just one thought, image, or feeling when you get into the box. And that happened multiple times at University of Maine, multiple times at University of Oklahoma. What it came back to was simplifying the process down and thinking about what you do want to do in order to have the greatest chance of executing the next play or the next pitch. Right. You know, it's and I love that, man. It's it it brings me to the, the process that I teach is it's called BVT. So you breathe, you visualize and you talk or self-talk. 
And it's like when you when you get that breath, and and I love the way that you actually ask that question to get her to think about, you know, what is it that you see or feel, you know, when you sw- you know when you're hitting your best. And she says, when I extend through. So not only is that a great um, self talk. Uh, guide, but it's also it gives you a great visual. So she takes a breath, she can see it, she says it, and then boom, trust it. And mm-hmm. it's, it's beautiful, man. That's great. You know what you just said is exactly what I just created a flow chart actually of what exactly what you just said. So one pitch equals a thought, image, and a feeling, and when you do those things it creates trust and then you're able to just get up there and do. Yeah. So it, our brains think in pictures. So when we tell ourselves words, it creates an image in our head and then every thought we have permeates into every cell in our body. So that's how you duplicate that feel. If you can describe the feel of your swing or describe the feel of your pitch with words, then you're going to be able to duplicate that feeling. And if you talk to any high level baseball or softball coach or even basketball or really probably any sport, what are you trying to do to be consistent? You're trying to duplicate the feel. Yeah. And how do we do that? Well, going backwards, feel, <laughs> feel image, thought, it's creating those images with words. So that's why journaling is so important after you have a good day, going back in and being like, why did I have a good day? What was I thinking about? And a lot of athletes like to think that they're not thinking about anything when they're playing at their best. <laughs> but it's, <laughs> but that doesn't make any sense either because uh, like at University of Oklahoma, there was a baseball player who uh, – he got back after he took a terrible swing at a ball and he grounded out and he was frustrated when he came back to the dugout. And I said, dude, beautiful breath. But what were you thinking about right after you took that breath? And he's like, nothing. I'm like, wait a second. Isn't that what every athlete says they want to be doing? They want to be thinking about nothing, but (laughs) actually what they're really doing is they're keenly and supremely focused on just one thing. Yep. Big time. And, and they're trusting that the, the subconscious or the unconscious mind to, to react and not to think. And, and it's a beautiful place to be where you, you feel like you're free, like you're not even thinking about anything, but you actually kind of are. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it's becoming aware of those thoughts. Then you can use them intentionally and consciously to get better and do better each and every pitch and be more consistent. Big time. Big time. I love that, man. I mean, man, I, I feel like we can just talk about that the whole the whole podcast today. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> uh, but I, I do, there's, there's so many cool, I, I believe there's some cool questions that are going to really, um, not only I'm going to have, uh, I'm going to be joyful listening to you answering these, but I think my listeners are going to love it too. But um, I do want to get into one more question about you as a baseball player. So when you think about your career as a baseball player, what do you think was your your biggest mental win and what was your biggest mental fail and how did you overcome it? Hmm, my biggest mental win? Yeah. My biggest mental win was, I would have to say, throughout my career as a baseball player, I would... 
Man, I, I so I didn't throw that hard. I was a lefty pitcher at Indiana State, Division One. I. I topped out at 83. I remember pitching in the regional against Cal State Fullerton, and I come out of the pen. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm feeling amazing today. And I, <laughs> I get up on the mound. I, I like huck it in there, you know, perfect strike. I'm like, that had to be 90. <laughs> I turn around and I look up on the board and it says 81 and I'm like, all right, stick to your game plan. Pazic, stick to your game plan, you know? But so I, I guess that's probably, uh, my biggest mental win is that when, when I was going well, when things were going well, I was able to stay within myself and not get out of, not get out of control. And I guess that's both my biggest mental win and my biggest mental failure is when I did get out of control, I didn't know how to rein it back in. Mm -hmm. So speaking of that, the next year I was coming off an injury and I come in against Wichita State in the in the postseason tournament, the MVC tournament. And I just remember not the first batter. I was fine. But after that, I. I started getting out of control and s tried to throw it harder. And I call that primal. I went primal. I wasn't really thinking. I was just trying to muscle it up and throw it as hard as I could. And I wound up leaving stuff up in the zone and I uh, gave up a couple of runs. And I just didn't know how to get back to being in control of myself. And now knowing what I know, that's really why I do what I do is because I didn't know how to do that stuff. Mm. And at the division one level, I had a sub three ERA and that was purely based off of all of the, all of the work I did growing up really, because I had good control. I had a good change up, which saved me a lot. And I had good feel. I was able to duplicate that feel. But then when I got out of control, all that stuff went out, out the window and it was hard for me to get back, which is what I find is the same case for most athletes at the division one level. They're good. They have the talent. They have the skill to play there and they're, they start in control of themselves, but then one thing goes wrong and then another thing goes wrong and then another thing goes wrong and they can't get back to being in control of themselves. So that's where, you know, we come in is to help them get back there because it's going to happen. There's going to be things that push you out, out of control. And then it's your job to get back in control of them. Totally. And, and looking back on it, I wasn't even aware of what I was doing. <laughs> but, and that's that's one of the rules of of performance is what you are aware of, you can control. What you are unaware of controls you. Yeah. And so I was totally being controlled by my emotions and by outside influences instead of just taking ownership of it myself. And then. I, but then again, like I said, I, I, I feel like looking back, I wasn't even aware that that happened until after the fact, which, wow. you know, that doesn't help. <laughs> right, right. Well, it's funny. When I look back at my career, my my best game in my entire life was because I had a mental game and my worst game in my life, which actually was my last year of, of playing football, is uh, my worst game is when I didn't have a mental game. And, but it's funny because when, you know, I, I'm a little bit older than you. And so I was playing, you know, in the nineties and in even like, even in my youth, you know, mental performance and mental skills training, it just wasn't, it wasn't at the forefront. We weren't talking about it. And I, I was blessed to have a dad that was very involved in, in coaching and my development as an athlete and as a young man. But he was, he was teaching me breathing, visualization, uh, self-talk, uh, even, um, 
hypnosis. There was a little bit of that that he brought up, but no one taught him. He just thought it was the right thing to do, and, he, and it was interesting for him to teach me. Now, when you look back at your career, did you have like any exposure at all to this work while you were actually competing? While I was actually competing? Yeah. Hmm. You know, the I saw the looking back on it, I remember the hitters talking about it on my team and wiping it away and getting back to the next pitch and bringing yourself back under control before you get back in the box. But I don't ever remember talking about that stuff as a as a player until after I hung him up because I got hurt. I then I started getting into it on my own. My dad handed me uh, the mental game of pitching and that's kind of how I got started. But looking back on it, how you brought up your dad, my dad was also super competitive. And I remember when we were out on the golf course. So I always say, you're not playing the other team. You're always versing yourself in the game. It's never about you versus Virginia or you versus Arkansas. It's you versus the game. Mm. And I remember playing golf one day and I must've been like 14 years old and every shot I took, I would just was getting frustrated. And my dad kept looking at me. He goes, don't let the game beat you. Don't <laughs> let the game beat you. And now I use that all the time. And so, you know, my dad was super competitive. I, I didn't even know about this stuff until after he passed away about how competitive he was. But yeah, he taught me, a lot of a lot of good mental skills to really take me to the next level as well like i said i i think if it wasn't for him you know working with me out in the out in the driveway and whatnot and I, I would pitch to him for hours every day and not every day but most days we'd be out there for a couple hours and he would just be telling me one thing smooth smooth it out smooth it out and i remember in college that's what i would tell myself smooth right smooth and it was just that one word and when it when he was telling me it i'd be like dad shut up like <laughs> i get it <laughs> but he was you know he was shaping my mind totally. so that i could get back to that feeling of being smooth more often and more consistently right you know and thank you for sharing that story because it, it my dad was the same way um there was moments uh, he was very Man, he was an incredible teacher. He had a lot of space for, for us, my brother and I, to to fail and to work on things. Um, and he was just really good with language, the words that he used. And it was really interesting. Growing up, from a self-talk perspective, he would always say, like almost every baseball game. And as I was getting away from the game of baseball, uh, which was his sport, but when I was getting more into football, he would always say on game day. Or on football, it was usually the night before, he would say, you're number one. And it wasn't like he, he – and he wanted me to say it. Like it got like when I got old enough, like he was like, I want I want you to – I want to hear it. And I'm like, Dad, I know I'm number one. But it wasn't like, number one, you have to be the best player on the field or you have to be the best quarterback. You just – you're number one. Like be your best. And the, and that was pre I – mean, I mean, he was saying that to me when I was like eight, nine years old. All the way up until I was done in my twenties, so it's just those little things that that stuck with me. And so there was moments like where I, I was getting down on myself, or I threw an interception, or I made a bad read. I would say that to myself: just be number one, just be number one. And that's the same thing what, what what your dad was saying, you know, smooth it out, smooth it out. Mm -hmm. Just those things that are so impactful. 
Yeah, that's that's a great story. Yeah, I like how he was telling you those things. I'm trying to think of a time when when uh, somebody told me stuff like that. But honestly, it hasn't been until I actually got into the high performance world of how important self-talk is, because I think looking back on it, I couldn't even describe the feel that I had. Like I was a good hitter in high school and a good pitcher in college. And then now I teach this stuff. But looking back, I was so consistent with my feel and working at my game to hold on to that feel. Um, but I, I don't know if I ever was able to, I don't know if I ever told myself stuff like that mm. growing up or was ever told things like that by my coaches or by my, by my dad necessarily besides that smoothed out in yeah. the, in the driveway. <laughs> right. Right. Well, it's funny with me. Like, uh, I don't know what it was. I learned at a young age to, how to, you know, I didn't know how to get confident. I just, I just kind of showed up confident. And there was times where I, I wasn't confident, but I got myself back into a confident state. But as I look back, I would say I spent most of my competitive life in sports. And now it changed as I got into junior college and I, and I started getting a little more mature with my mindset. But I was very, very extrinsically motivated. Like there was man, there was, uh, I was, I didn't know how dangerous I was living on everything that was out of my control. I put so much weight into it. So in high school, if I had a bad game, I was afraid that people wouldn't like me anymore. I was afraid that my stock, you know, would go down in people's eyes. And I lived in that, in that um, paradigm, which sucked. And I had, and I, and I felt alone in a way. I had no one to talk to because I didn't know if it was the right way to feel or think. But as I got into more of my craft and I started to get really, really like into, you know, perfecting my drop, perfecting my reads, the way that I was throwing the ball, my release, all that, then it was, then I started to develop this more intrinsically connection and, and motivation and then it started to change. But I, majority of my life I spent like just being motivated by external things I had no control of. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, that's the game right there. Right. Not, not letting stressors become stress right. and not letting the outside influence the inside. You know, you are in control of yourself going back to going again, going back to what another rule that I always talk about is you have to be in control of yourself before you can control your performance. And when you're not in control of yourself and you're letting others control you or you're extrinsically motivated to that level, because I, I do believe that there are there is something to extrinsic motivators. Right. For sure. And so when you're when you're not or when you are extrinsically motivated to that level, it's getting back to yourself and what actually makes you great and your preparation that you put in there what it sounds like is what helped is when everything started to switch over from being extrinsically motivated to intrinsically motivated and you're like oh man like look at me if i prepare like this i perform like (laughs) this and now you know you're, you're in control instead of letting other people be in control totally and it's not about your talent anymore or if your talent's going to show up on game day it's about the skill that you've built yeah Exactly. It's it's about your is about your self control showing up instead of like your talent. Um, you know, and there is some talent there to you know, as far as self control goes. But um, man, I love it. 
I love it. So let's talk about this profession, this beautiful profession that you and I are in, and uh, share with my listeners, like, how did you get into this profession, and what motivated you to be a, a mental performance coach? Well, I was a college baseball, summer baseball coach, and I realized that I like teaching the mental skills more than I like teaching the physical skills. So I was talking to my boss, Nelson Gord, one day, and he's like, man, you should, you should hit up Brian Kane. You know, he's, he's a mental performance coach. And I think you guys would, you'd learn a lot from him. So I looked it up and Kane had this immersion weekend where you go down and you live with him for three days and you travel around the country going to different super regionals for baseball. And so I went and kind of hit it off. And that's when I, that's the weekend when I was like, yes, this is definitely what I want to do. And then I moved down. I was 15 minutes from Kane. I went to TCU for my degree in sports psychology and just kind of jumped all in right away. And it was that that was it right there. That's how I got into it. And now I kind of was working for him for a few years. And now I'm working on my own as the PASIC performance group going around to different colleges and high schools around the country, as well as internationally with a couple of teams. Awesome. Awesome. And, and and I know obviously you and I both know Brian and he's, you know, obviously proven and awesome at what he does. How much has he um, been a part of your development and um, in support in being a great mental performance coach? Man, I would say <laughs> he's been the biggest factor in the way that I coach and the way that I teach when it comes to mental performance. And then recently over the last, what would it be about eight months now, I've been working with Greg Warburton very closely. I actually hired him as one of my coaches because he is a master of question asking. And he actually wrote this book called ask more, tell less. Again, his name is Greg Warburton. And if you want to take your leadership to the next level, I truthfully believe that you need to ask more questions and become a skilled question asker. I was actually reading Brett Ledbetter, who's another performance coach, his book, What Drives Winning Teams. And in there, he talks about a coach that can ask questions to, he, it says, Billy knows how to ask those questions, those kinds of questions, a hundred different ways to stimulate self-learning. Every great coach that I've talked to the first thing they do is they ask questions and they get athletes to think for themselves and become self-reliant. So, which is what you ultimately want because when they're out there on the court, you can't be in their ear all the time at practice. You can, but when they get there out on the court, it's up to them. And it's, it's a little bit harder to guide them down the path. They have to be able to guide themselves. And how do you do that? You make them self-reliant. And how do you do that? You ask better questions to them during practice, before practice, after practice. So I've, I've been working with Greg Warburton a little bit and I got to say my, I thought I was on a good track, but he exponentially boosted me to a whole nother level of coaching that I wasn't even aware of. Yeah. It's funny how just certain and open-ended questions really not only further the conversation and further the discovery process and the development process, um, and also trust and rapport. It's just, it's, it's really cool. I, I spent, I'm, I'm very blessed that I spent 17 years in, uh, in corporate America in sales, in sales leadership, where 
it was all about asking questions and it was all about building trust and rapport. And so it, that really helped me get to a point where when I'm asking these questions to coaches and athletes, it's, um, I don't know, there's, I feel more comfortable just because I've had a lot of practice at it, but I just know it's like when you hit the ball, right? You know, when you hit that sweet part of the bat and just like, Oh, and it's just butter, right? It's that beautiful, Mm -hmm. that feel. I get that feeling, or even when you throw a quarter, you know, when you throw a touchdown, it's I get that same feeling when I ask that that just that beautiful question. Even though it comes <laughs> out of your mouth, right? You're like, yes, and then they and they just give you so much information based off that that question. I know exactly what you're talking about because at University of Maine, the last day I was there, I called up my girlfriend after. I was like, man, I was in full-on coaching mode. <laughs> it was amazing. Everything yeah. that came out of my mouth, I felt like it was the exact right thing to say at the exact right time but it all came back to question asking too and that's the thing about coaching is that a lot of coaches think they have to say the just right thing at the just right time but really when you ask a question you don't have to tell them anything you don't it takes the pressure off of you and you can just ask them a simple question and be curious and it more times than not winds up working in your favor and their favor as well totally Totally. And what do you think is the most challenging part of your job? And what is the most rewarding part of your job? The most challenging part of the job is coaches, I would say. Okay. Normally, the coach that brings you in is pretty bought into the mental game. But it's the coach. Actually, that's not true. Sometimes there's co- there are fixed mindset coaches that bring in mental coaches because they think that it'd be a good idea, but then they're going to be stuck in their ways anyways. And you try to talk to them, but they're like, Oh yeah, that's a good idea. But then there's no follow up on it or there's no action taken on it. So I would say that the coaches are probably one of the, one of the big barriers because I've, I honestly believe after working with athletes, athletes want this stuff. And when you go in and you bring energy to it, they want to be a part of that energy. And so it just comes down to the coaches being bought in and following up with the systems that you put in place and being willing to accept coaching as well. Yeah. yeah and I agree with you. I think uh, more often than not, when a head coach brings me in, they're bought in and it makes the whole process easier, you know, for the buy-in process, you know, from the athlete and from the team perspective. Where I've seen a little bit of a disconnect is where you have this head coach that's totally bought in, but then there's the staff below them. And, and so you're, you're dealing with a whole other, you know, yes, the head coach is bought in, but then maybe some of them are not bought in some of the assistant coaches, or they're just not aware of this stuff. And they're like, why is this dude here? You know, why is this guy taking up time in, 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 you know, in my breakout session? Like, so I've had to deal with that a little bit. And again, it's just, it's, it's okay. You know, it's, it's, you know, I had to tell myself it's okay. Just build the relationship, take time with them, you know, invest time in them, make them. I'm, I'm nodding my head right now because that word you just said, take time, build the relationship. That's definitely what needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And what about the most uh, rewarding part? I love this because there's, there's for me, there's a lot. <laughs> the, the mini breakthroughs, the mini wins yeah. that you get. You know, you might be working with a team of 45 and then one day you get a, a freshman or something like that. Just it clicks. Yeah. 
yeah. that that click moment and like like i said after working with maine and oklahoma this past week there were so many of those every day i would go back and i'd be like oh my gosh that was amazing today that just that one light bulb you saw it flick on yep or they did something and they come back to you and they say did you see that and that is that's the most rewarding part hands down because when because at first it's the mental game is really hard to also get a feel for but when you feel it it's like a door is opened and it gets closed behind you there's no going back to the old life so when when you see them (laughs) when you see that click and you see that light bulb go on that is hands down the most rewarding thing Mm. ever and it, at Oklahoma, there was a baseball player who he gets into the box, takes a breath, gets in first pitch, fouls it off, gets out, swipes it away, like kicks the dirt a little bit. Uh, and that was his physical action as like, OK, wipe it away. Next pitch takes a minute, grabs another breath, comes back into the comes back into the box, takes another deep breath. And we had just talked about doing this the day before because he's he has a tendency to rush. Second pitch of the AB, whoopow, just <laughs> deposits it over the right field fence. And he comes into the dugout and I go, hey, man, nice swing. He goes, did you see, did you see I wiped it away? And then I, I like took my time and reset and then got back in the box and took that breath. I'm like, yeah, man, it was amazing. Yeah. It looked great. And that's it right there. That little light bulb, that click right there is, is what is so satisfying to me totally a hundred percent man it's you know I, I i always say it's just it's when someone is bought in and and what i mean by that it's when someone comes to me or the team you know we have a lot of team that uh, a lot of team members that are participating in a group session to me i mean my frequency is is really high i'm like yes i love it but if i'm doing one-on-one work it's when when the athlete is bringing me stuff to work on. When they're like, "Hey, when I was reflecting on my performance last week, this is what I wrote down. I want to work on this stuff." And when I hear that, I'm like, you, "I mean, I want to do backflips." I'm like, "Yes," because they want it. They're thirsty. They're hungry, and and if anything, they're starving for it. And I and I, that's the stuff that really just um, it makes me smile inside when, when people bring me stuff based off their reflection. It just, I love that. Mm-hmm. And you know what I think you do beautifully as a, as a performance coach, just talking to you these times that we've talked is that you're so others focused. And when you're others focused, the byproduct of being others focused is that you wind up helping yourself, you know? <laughs> yes. And so you're others focused. And then a byproduct, a byproduct of that is that you get that satisfaction out of helping others. And this is one thing I've, I was talking about with some athletes over the, over this past week as well is like, okay, let's talk about when you seek certain things and the byproducts of them. So when you seek curiosity in school, the byproduct of that is A's. When you seek others first, the byproduct of that is you wind up taking care of yourself. Uh, when you seek the process in sport, a byproduct of that is winning plays. Now, if you seek the byproduct first, that causes stress. So if you seek wins, if, you, if you're focused on wins, 
all that will happen is that you get stressed. If you focus on getting A's in school, you'll be stressed. If you focused on if you focus on you first, you'll ultimately be stressed. Maybe not initially, but down the road, that's a lonely path. And when you seek, yeah, when you seek winning over the process, that causes stress. Yeah, so totally. But yeah, go, going back to it, like I think you, I think you do that very well. Is you put others first, and that you know, byproduct of that is <laughs> is intrinsic satisfaction. Totally. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. I know it is, and, and to what you were saying, your same your same uh, example. Um, you know, I was talking about the the BVT process, and when I teach that, it's more of a of a refocusing strategy, um, and you have to practice it so you can actually get it down real quick. But I'm when I'm on there's a high school that I work with, and man, last year I had this young uh, female athlete came up to me, and I'm like, I'm like, hey, how are you? And she's like, Coach, I've been BVTing, <laughs> and I'm like, yes. So yeah. It's um, it's it's that stuff. Not only does it intrinsically just it just makes me sing, but you are right, and I think it's huge. The cool thing about what we do, it's one thing to be in service and to help. I mean, that's just a beautiful place to be. But to do that and then learn, like I learn from my from my, I learn all the time from my clients, and and that's kind of like to me the completing the circle of of doing our work is yes, I give my energy. My energy is my offering. And that is beautiful. It's a beautiful place to be in. But to learn from these people too is just like, I don't know. I, I, I guess I can put some words to it. But right now, it's like hard to describe just learning from my clients how cool that is. I completely agree. It's you never know. It's, that's the beauty of asking good questions too. Is you never know what's going to come out of their mouth. Yeah. And when you ask a question, that's when you get into their mind, and that's when you do learn from them. Totally, totally. Now. What do you think, you know, so far in your career, what do you think athletes struggle with the most? I, I think we talked about this already, and I'll, I'm, I love talking about it, but getting back to being in control of themselves when something happens, when they throw a pitch and the ump balls them on a strike that was obviously a strike, or when they look down the line and their coach is, has bad body language, or they look at the depth chart and they're last on the depth chart, and it puts them instantly into a, I use the signal lights a lot, into a yellow or red light, and a quick rundown on the signal lights. Green, when you come up to a green light in a car, you go, so you're in control of yourself. Yellow, red, you're, you either have to slow down, speed up, or at a red light, stop, or risk crashing and burning. So... Um, when you go through adversity, sometimes you get put into a yellow or red light and the right there is where athletes struggle the most. One is being even aware of the fact that they're in a yellow or red light. Right. And then the second part that is once they become aware, then the second step is how do I get out of this? And <laughs> that's, that's, Honestly, I think the biggest struggle is most athletes are aware, especially at a high level uh, in high level athletics. Most athletes are aware when they start getting out of control and then they come to me and they say, hey, man, like I'm noticing I'm doing this, but I have no idea how to get out of it. I feel like I've tried everything. And so then we talk about it and come up with a strategy for getting out of it and and you mind if I share the one strategy I've been using yeah, recently? Please. 
Absolutely. So the one strategy I've been using recently with athletes to get them out of that spot is what the Navy SEALs use as well. And it's the acronym is WIRM, W-I-R-M. W is witness negativity. I is interdict. R is replace. M is mantra. So the first part is witness negativity. That's where they are. They've, they've become aware of the issue. Now you witness it and then interdict means to bomb your enemies. So you bomb that negativity after you've witnessed it and you've accepted it, you, you bomb it and then you bomb it with what you want to do. So you get back to the do zone and you replace it with your mantra. So maybe it's, Maybe when a, a softball pitcher is throwing a pitch and they're collapsing on their backside and they're like, oh, my God, collapsed on my backside again. What the heck? I keep collapsing on my backside. And then they notice they're like, oh, I'm collapsing on my backside. They Now they are aware of that. Then they interdict it with, OK, I don't want to be collapsing on my backside. What do I want to do? I want to stay stacked. So then on their next their next pitch hopefully they get back to that point because when they get back to the do zone they're in the green they're in control of themselves and when they tell themselves the right words stay stacked that creates an image which creates a feeling in their body and then they go out and they duplicate that feeling like everything happens twice first it happens in your mind then in reality and so getting back to that do zone and and just telling themselves stay stacked stay stacked stay stacked and then they go out and repeat that totally and I, and I love that process, and I, and I love mantras too, because you say it enough times, whatever that is, right? For me, like my mantra when I played was PCF. It was poise, confidence, and focus, and I felt like those are the three things that I needed to live by um, to, to play the position of quarterback. But if you say that all the time, you're saying it over and over more often than not, your brain's going to tell you to be, you know, po- you know, to be poised, confident, and, f- and focused. And so, and I love that, man, because like when you have that mantra and you're connected with it, there's no room for negativity. There's no room for self-doubt. There's no room for negative stress, right? There's just like, that's why I love mantras, man. When you get one that you can connect with, man, they're powerful. Mm-hmm. And I think what you brought up right there, which I want to highlight is you told yourself that over and over and over and over. So you were rewiring your brain to that would be your default thought. So we're all born with this negativity bias. And so we have to retrain our brains and redevelop new pathways that are stronger than the negative pathways. So that when something happens, your default mode is poise, confidence, right? Yeah. And focus. Yep. So poise, confidence, and focus is what you would say to yourself when the adversity strikes, just like the, oh my gosh, starts with a V, the basketball team that won the national championship. Uh, what? A couple of years ago. Villanova? Yeah, Villanova. Yeah. So Villanova, their big thing is attitude. They say that to each other over and over and over and over again. And I just read this great story about in the championship game when they're playing North Carolina, they're down by, th- they're up by three. And the only thing they had to do was not give up a three pointer. And what do they do? They give up a three pointer. And instead of guys coming back into the, coming back into the bench at the timeout and being like, Oh my gosh, can you believe that shot? Like what the heck, man, what are we going to do now? It was, Hey, attitude. Attitude. attitude and they all just start repeating attitude so that's 
they've trained that default mindset to be attitude instead of their default mindset to be complaining, blaming, defending. Right. I love that. I love that. Now, a couple couple more questions before we uh, sign off here. And I want to bring this up just because obviously this is um, it's very sad. And uh, I think it, it in some way it brought our country together with the passing of, of Kobe Bryant. And, you know, he's one of my favorite athletes of all time. Uh, and for many reasons uh, beyond his competitive mindset and spirit, but the way that he actually attacked in his approach to his craft. But he was he was an athlete that was so bought in into the mental game, into mental skills training. And he, he lived it. He was an example of it. And I just wanted just to see, you know, just ask the question to you of, like, what's your thoughts on Kobe Bryant as an athlete and as a person? And, and when you heard that he passed, what did you feel? Yeah, I was actually sitting in the hotel room, and I read it on Twitter. And the first thing I thought was, like, uh, this is probably some, you know, somebody made something up, and it's a fake death. Me but- too. Then I looked it up and I turned on the TV. I was like, holy crap. And I literally watched it for four hours because I thought to myself, I said, they might talk about this for a few days, a few weeks, maybe a few months, but nothing is going to replace the emotion that everybody is talking with right now. And so that's why I found it so important to sit there and listen to these people tell stories about him. And I actually took notes on it. And a few of my notes were how... The first one I wrote down is be curious. He was insatiably curious. And that's one thing I always talk about is be curious before you seek control, whether you're a teammate or the coach, be curious before you go in and try and tell people what to do. Or if you're, and and that's what I say, the difference between a boss and a leader is a boss goes in and tells people what to do. A leader goes in and asks questions and gets other people to think about what they should do. Mm -hmm. And then I also had, he had this appetite for the pursuit of excellence and everything that he did. He was incredibly gracious, always learning, loved to compete, thought at a higher level. And this one is huge. This is what I talked about a lot since, since his passing is how he thought at a higher level and he was always thinking bigger. And for those, for those listening right now, I'd like you to raise your hand as high as you can. Grant, you can, you can join me as well. Raise your hand as high as you can. And now give me just a little bit more and then raise it just a tiny bit more than that. Reach, 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 reach. Now, the first time I asked you, you can go ahead, put your, put your yeah. hand down. The first time I asked you, I said, raise your hand as high as you can. You raise it as high as you can. Then I said, give me a little bit more. And you gave me a little bit more. And then I said, now just a little bit more. And you did it even more. Well, I did this with a, I did this with a class and it was talk about thinking at a different level. Right. Well, I did that. And then I said, now raise it a foot higher. And everybody put their hand down. They looked at me and they're like, what? And then a person in the back of the class stood on her chair and raised her hand another foot higher. And I'm like, that's it right there. That's the breakthrough that we need. I'm like, that's thinking at a higher level. I'm like, and if you can do that in your sport, whether it be in baseball, maybe it's making a, a, 
a dangerous shift. You know, you might be like, okay, O2, take a couple of steps to the right. Well, <clears throat> maybe you've noticed something in their swing. And instead of taking just a couple of steps, you go like six steps into the hole and everybody's like, what the heck is he doing? Yeah. But you've made this breakthrough of, okay, now this is what I saw and I'm going to go ahead and take that risk because I believe that based on what I've learned in the past, like this is where the ball is going to be hit. And sure enough, more times than not, those types of breakthroughs are rewarded. Um, and there's plenty of examples of that, but he was always, he never, he never thought, you know, when he was 17, he wanted to be the greatest of all time. And people were, people were making fun of him and snickering behind his back and whatnot or snickering right to his face. But he was like, no, it's going to happen. And we talked about this a little bit earlier. When your goal is that big, you have to up-level your values that go into that. You have to up-level your commitment. You have to up-level your dedication and grittiness and mental toughness in order to get to that level. And that's why choosing big goals is so key because you then have to become a better person to get there. Yeah. And you said it. I mean, he played a big game. And uh, and to be honest with you, I I felt as a kid up into my early 20s, I played a pretty big game and then a lot of things happened in my life. I played a narrow and safe and fearful game for a long time and there's other dynamics on on field that but the last five six years I've played a, a much bigger game and it's because of the goals and it's and you said it perfectly it when you think of him as a person regardless of the athlete he just plays a big game and and I'm gonna actually with my soccer team today I'm gonna I'm gonna actually do that with them I'm gonna have them uh, stretch I'm going to, that's a beautiful exercise to get people out of there. Like, yes, put your hand up as far as you can. Give me a little bit more. Just give me a little bit more. And th that is such a great lesson for people that if you really want to do stretch goals, if you want to really stretch, you really want to push, be uncomfortable, you've got to be willing to go just a little bit more. And he was willing to do that every single day, mm -hmm. every day. I mean, it was like, he was just, and, and I'll, and I'll share this with you real quick that when he passed, um, I was, I, I didn't, it took me a couple hours to like let, like, it's still, it's still sinking in for me, but it, for it to be real, it would took a couple hours for me to go, whoa, he's, he's actually really not here anymore. But I literally finished his book on Saturday morning, Mamba Mentality. And it's uh, literally like, I do this thing where I, if I read any book, I read at least six pages a day. I try to, and uh, I've been doing that with this book, and his book is really easy to read. It's cool pictures, but the book itself, like the first part of it, it's about his whole journey as a basketball player and how he actually mentally and physically got prepared for his career and throughout his career. And then towards the middle and towards the and throughout the the back end of it, he talks about all the great elite players that he played. So there'll be a page or two that's on Westbrook, on uh, Garnett, on uh, Wade. And, it, and he would literally break down all their strengths and how he had to actually uplift his strengths and the things he had to do mentally differently. And it was just like, it was a conversation he was having with you. And that was what I took away when I completed his book on Saturday morning. I felt like I just had this conversation with Kobe about his mindset. And then the next day he's gone. And so I was like, it was just, it was empty. And it was, a, and it's such an intimate look into his life. 
from a mindset standpoint that it was just it was just uh, eerie for me, like because I felt like I just talked to him, but I've never met him, I've never taken a picture with him, but uh-huh. uh, but it was just it was it was a crazy experience. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean that's that is an incredible story, and there's when you, when you just finish a book like that and then yeah. that happens, that that is. It's it is a little creepy and eerie. Yeah. Especially oh. since you just talked to him or you felt like you talked to him. Yeah. For sure. Well, thank you for sharing your your thoughts and uh th- thank you for that. Um one more question here before we sign off uh and I love this question, but when you reflect on your whole career, so even as an athlete and a mental performance coach, what do you think you've learned the most about yourself? What have I learned the most about myself is that Actually, this is something I've been thinking about a lot over the last year, year and a half is I don't think there was a time in my life where I ever really saw things as like a struggle or even when I was four years old, I we used to have this nanny from Ireland that would come over and I hadn't seen her in over a decade and then until last like a two years ago now I saw her two September's ago and she talked about how I told her about what I'm doing and she's like oh man even when you were four years old you were so driven to do whatever it is that you wanted to do and so I think that's what I've learned about myself the most is that it all comes down to <laughs> the my definition of mental toughness or success or whatever you want to put this in is know know what you want and then do what you have to do to get what you want. And when you do those those things, that's who you are. That's who you become. And when you when you live authentically like that, when you chase what you want to chase, uh that's where freedom is and things aren't seen as struggles anymore. They aren't seen as challenges. They aren't seen as a step backwards. You know, you hear a lot of people say, Oh, I feel like I'm taking one step forward and two steps back. When you change your mindset like that and you're going after what you want to go after, even when you face adversity and it, and sometimes in the past it might be like, Oh, I felt like I took two steps back. What that really is, is you taking another step forward because that needed to happen on your path in order for you to get through to success. I always say struggle success is on the other side of struggle. So even in times of struggle, that's all you that needs to happen in order for you to get to where you want to go. That's awesome, but man. That's that's knowing, that's understanding. You know where you want to go, <laughs> right? <laughs> so if you don't know where you want to go, then your job is to figure out where you want to go. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome, man. That was awesome, man. Uh, share with me, or actually share with my listeners, on how they can connect with you, learn more about your practice, and connect with you on social media, and also where they can listen to your podcast. Yeah. Uh, if they want to get in contact with me, I always say my number is eight, four, seven, nine, two, two, one, three, seven, one, reach out, call me, text me. So you listen to the grants podcast and you had a couple questions or you wanted to dive into a topic a little bit more. I'd be happy to discuss it with you. Email is Tyler at Pazic performance group.com. That's P A Z I K performance group.com. And then Instagram is probably my number one platform. And that's Pazic performance group. Again, P A Z and zebra ik performance group so that's where they can get 
a hold of me. Was there another question? Uh, in your podcast. Oh, my podcast. That's right. And my podcast is the Pasic Performance Group podcast, which Grant will be on at <laughs> the end of February. All right. All right, man. Tyler, man, this is um, man, this was a treat. This was actually really fun for me, and I know my listeners are going to enjoy it too and get a tremendous amount of value. But just to talk to another peer within the field, um, you got you're, you're dude, you're you've got it, and you're heading in the right direction. And I can't wait to see you do more incredible things with your career. Man, thank you for the compliment. I truly appreciate it. Oh.